Well, it's, it's been about 20 years after the resurrection, and uh, the Apostle Paul is on his missionary journey, the second missionary journey. And if we could throw the map up there, you'll recall that each week we talk about how Paul launches out in the area of Greece, and you'll see Macedonia, which is you know, the northern area of Greece, and then down in the, the bottom of Ki, which is uh, the second, which is the southern part of Greece. And you'll recall from previous studies that Paul begins this journey way up at the top in the town of Philippi. And it's in Philippi that Paul uh, runs afoul of the local leadership. And of course, they arrest him and they give him what, what we would refer to as a Roman beating. And this would be a beating that would leave him forever disfigured, forever disfigured. So that when Paul says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ, he's referring to what took place here. It would be uh, uh, more extensive than caning that you might read about, which takes place in, in, in other countries. And so Paul leaves there as, as he's released from that jail and he's scabbed, he's, he's bruised, he's open, there's open wounds, there's bleeding, and he travels two days down to the town of Thessalonica, which is what we're going to be studying today. And you'll recall that when he's there at Thessalonica, he only spends three weeks. He spends three weeks and he's teaching and he's establishing a church, but he's also healing from the beating that just took place in Philippi. And after three weeks, once again, he, the, the local leadership is incited to, to a riot, and they realize that they need to get the Apostle Paul out of town. The, the believers there in this newly formed church realize that Paul hasn't healed from the previous beating, which has only been three weeks prior. He's still scabbed over, and he's still healing from that. They realize they need to get him out of town. As a matter of fact, we saw as we traveled through, let's throw the verse up on the screen, in Acts chapter 17, it says, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They realize they need to get him out of town because they realize since he hasn't healed from the last beating, he's not going to survive the next beating. And it also indicates that Paul probably still wanted to stay there, but it's the brethren, the new believers who realize they need to get him out of town. So he heads down to Berea, and that'll be important for our study. And then after Berea, he goes, continues south, and you'll see down in Athens. And there in Athens, ultimately he comes over to the uh, left a little bit, and he goes to this town of Corinth. Now it'll be in this town of Corinth that he will write back to this church in Thessalonica. And, and it's interesting that, that this church is going to be about six months old when Paul writes them back. And, and it's also interesting some of the topics that Paul's going to talk about to this church, which only had Paul for about three weeks. He's going to talk about things like the Antichrist, the rapture of the church, the second coming, uh, a lot of end time stuff. But it also gives us an insight from Paul's perspective. What do you talk about if you only have three weeks to start a church? And these are the topics that Paul felt were very important. And we're going to talk about that as we travel. Now, we've been working our way through this book. As Paul is writing back, we're going to, we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. It's going to be somewhat of a, a whirlwind study. And in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while. Now, how many of your Bibles say torn away? Torn away. Now, that's important. I, I, like, I like that rendition, torn away. You'll remember that Paul was in Thessalonica. He's there for three weeks. Things are going great. All of a sudden, there's a riot. The brethren realize they have to get him out of town, and so they have to get him out of town in the middle of the night. From Paul's perspective, I was torn away from you. you know, we were just getting going, and I was torn away. So he say, says, I was taken away in my translation from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Verse 18. Verse 18, he says, 
For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, but Satan has hindered us. And again, the church is only six months old, so in the past few months, Paul's wanted to go back and, and see them, but, but uh, Satan keeps hindering. And Satan is hindering Paul going back by an angry mob that will kill him if he shows up. So that, that's what's going on there. Uh, verse 19, he says, for, for who is our hope and our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Now, I want you to underline, if you haven't, the last line there, it says, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. This book is divided. Every, um, every chapter of this book ends with a reference to, to the end times. And so we'll talk about that as we travel through. So then we pick it up in chapter 3. He just continues on, and he says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, Paul's talking about, I've, I've left you and I couldn't endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, everybody look on the map and you see Athens. We, we decided to be left at Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So Paul there in Athens, he's going to come over to Corinth, but he's going to send Timothy back up to Berea and Thessalonica in that area to strengthen them in their faith. Now, why does he need to do that? He was only there for three weeks. There's a lot more to talk about. So that, verse 3, no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. You yourselves know that we've been destined for this. Paul says, you know, when I was with you, I told you we were going to suffer. Was I right or was I right? Huh? Was I right? And, and so don't be disturbed when I told you that this was going to happen, and now it's happening. And they're certainly experiencing that there. And, and Paul is letting them know if, that if, if they did that to us, then certainly they're going to do the same thing to you. So there's going to be suffering. Now, the reality is that every one of us is going to suffer tribulation in this world. We're going to suffer tribulation because Satan hates us. And, and the truth is, it's not so much that Satan hates you and I personally, but the reality is that he hates God. And there's something that we, we learn about this being created in the image of God. And we talked about this last week. You know, last week I, I shared, and we, we all agreed that you, know, you could take my car and you could wreck my car and that's fine, I'll get another one. You could burn down my house, that's fine, that doesn't really bother me. You could walk up and punch me in the face, you know, and I'll get over that. But somebody hurts my kid all of a sudden, it's, it's wrath. Remember we talked about that? In the same way, Satan has learned, because he hates God so much, that the only way that he can really hurt God is to hurt what God loves the most. And so Satan wants to do you in, not because he personally hates you, he does, but because he hates God, and he realizes that's the only way that he can really hurt God is by hurting something that God loves as much as he loves us. Make sense? So, so you and I in this world, like Paul is talking about, we're going to face tribulation because, because, because Satan hates us. Now, verse 4, he says, For indeed we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and it came to pass, as you know. Verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter, now I want you to underline the word tempter, however it says it in your Bible, might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now it's interesting, um, in this verse, Satan is referred to as the tempter. Satan is referred to throughout the New Testament. 
that he's uh, referred to as a, a very real entity. He has a personality. And so um, the, he, in the New Testament, we're told that he is the source of our affliction. He's the one in Matthew 13, when the sower sows the word, Satan comes to take away the good seed before it has a chance to do something in, in the life of somebody. He's the one who sows evil in the world, the Bible tells us. Uh, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving. And he tempted the Lord himself. And we've all heard that story. And if he did that to Jesus, just know he's going to come and he's going to try to tempt us. And here we find that he's hindering Paul's missionary work. What's also interesting is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I've put it there in your outline, it says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And and this is what makes him so dangerous and, and so tempting is that he appears so attractive. Now, that'll be important for our study as we continue to unpack this. So Paul says, I I was worried about you. I I, I wasn't sure how you were doing. But Timothy arrived in Corinth and brought us the good news. And we pick it up in verse 6. And it says, but now that Timothy has come from, from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Now, remember, this church is only six months is only six months old. They are walking as a church, but they've only had three weeks of actual instruction with the Apostle Paul. Not everybody became a believer on week one, so some of the people who are there only have about a week's instruction from the Apostle Paul, and yet they're still walking as a church. We also noticed that, that Paul wasn't able to give them any discipleship program or anything like that. All they have was God's word, and, and they're still functioning as a church. That'll be important as we go. We pick it up in verses 7 and 8, and in verse 7 it says, Now, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So Paul says, you guys are doing great. I was worried. I I sent Timothy. I was praying for you guys. And finally, I got the word. And here you are. You're doing great. I know you're going through a very difficult time, but you're standing tough in the Lord. And and you notice in verse 8, Paul says, but now, now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. I don't know if you know this, but um, statistically, when pastors leave the ministry, less than 2% of all pastors who leave the ministry leave because of some moral reason or they've done something weird with the money. Most pastors... I mean, very, very few pastors leave because of that. Those are the ones we hear about, but, but very few leave because of, of that reason. Most pastors leave the ministry because they think that ultimately nobody really cares what they're doing. They, they believe that, that it's, just, it's not having any effect. And, and Paul here is going through the same thing. I was wondering, you know, did it, did it have any effect? Are you guys still standing strong? And it encourages him to know that this church is still walking with the Lord. It's the same thing that John the Apostle said there in 3 John, he says there in your outline, says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's just something about knowing that somebody is getting it. So, so Paul's just, just letting them know that they're getting it, and it's encouraging him and his faith in a very difficult time. Well, verse 9, he says, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As night and day, 
as night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. Now, I want you to underline that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, once again, he says, I want to complete what's lacking in your faith. I was only there for three weeks. There's a whole lot more to talk about. So there's a, there's a lot that needs to be completed. So he says, verse 9, he says, well, what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we have received before our God on your account? As night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face that we might complete what is lacking in your faith. And what we see here is something that, that's um, evident in Paul's, Paul's life. Paul is continuously praying for the people that he's ministered to. And I want you to write this down, and we'll unpack this. The, the focus of Paul's prayer life is always the benefit of others. The benefit of others. He says, praying most earnestly that we may see your faith. Uh, the, the reason that we want to see your face is we realize there's some things lacking in your faith and we need to be there in order to, to, to shore that up. And when you look at this book, 1 Thessalonians, he constantly refers to uh, praying. N- notice there on your outline, he just says, um, praying most earnestly that we may see your face in verse 10. Um, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says that we may give thanks to God always, or we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. He tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll come to that in a couple of weeks, to pray without ceasing. And then in chapter 5, verse 25, he will say, brethren, pray for us. And one of the things that you find about the Apostle Paul is that he's a man of prayer, and he constantly cites praying, and he encourages people to pray. And uh, so you want to tuck that away. Maybe we'll talk about that in just a couple of moments. But the part that I want to highlight here is that um, in verse 10, he says, day and night that we, we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. And here's what I want you to write down. Paul prayed, but it didn't happen for years. It will be at least five years before Paul can actually make his way back and see this church. And so he just continues to pray. Paul understands something. I just want to highlight it, and then we're going to move on. And you want to write this down. Paul understood that prayer is, thy will be done, not my will be done. When I'm frustrated in my prayer life, it's because I've come to the place where I begin to pray, my will be done. Now, am I alone in this? And so Paul realizes, no, God has a plan. I'm going to pray. Here's what I'd like to see done. But God, if you have another plan, we'll go with that. So here Paul begins a three-verse prayer. Let's notice what he says. Verse 11, he says, he just starts praying. He says, now, may the God, may our God and Father himself, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. This is a prayer. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. I want you to underline the word love. For one another and for all people. Underline for all people. Just as we also do for you. Verse 13, he continues on. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And I want you to underline with all his saints, with all his saints. So there's a couple of things in this. Paul, Paul prays for three verses, and uh, then he'll just continue on. But in, in verse 12, 
I had you underline the word love. Did you underline that word? Okay, that word, you might want to write down somewhere, it's just the word agape. When we hear the word agape, we, we, we tend to think of, of this God-type love, don't we? Love for God, God's love for us, and we just refer to it as agape love. And Paul says, if you're really growing in the Lord, here's what this is going to look like. In verse 12, he says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Who's the one another? Well, that's other believers. That's one another. And then he says, um, and for all people. And for all people. Did you see that? Did you underline that? Okay, here's what it says. Um, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to run and hide, okay? If you're a Christian, and, and you're growing in the Lord, here's what it looks like. You are growing in your agape love for one another, believers, and, and then also it says, and for all people, for all people. Everybody see that, right? Okay, you ready? This is an election year, is it not? Okay, here's what this means. If you're a Christian here today, and you're a Republican, okay, let's just say, you're a Republican, and you're growing in your faith, you know what it means? You are growing in your love for Democrats. And if you're not growing in your love for Democrats, you're not growing in your relationship with Jesus. Now, if you're here today, and you're a Democrat, and um, you're growing spiritually, what that means is that you are growing in your love for Republicans. Not that you're embracing what they believe, but you love them because you know that Jesus loves them and you love them. And if you're not increasing in your love for them, then, then you are not growing in your relationship with Jesus. Verse 13. So that he might establish you, so that he might establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God. So you're, you're, you're growing in your love for other people so that he might establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, we're going to talk about this next week, so I'm just going to reference it this week. Um, but, but just to, to reference... Uh, here, he talks about the coming with all the saints. There are two events that you need to know about in end times prophecy. And, and the first event is what's called the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church is where Jesus comes for his saints. And I want you to write that down. Jesus comes for his saints. Jesus talked about this. You remember at the Last Supper in John 14, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, he's going to heaven, he's preparing a place for us, he will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When, when you read this verse, you realize that he's coming to receive us to where he is, and that we might be where he is. So he's not here in the earth, he's there, and so he's preparing a place. There comes a time when he comes to receive us to be with him. So far, so good? Now, we typically call that the rapture of the church. That word rapture is a little further in this chapter. You have to be here next week, and we'll talk about that because it is in the Bible, and I'll show you, I'll show you that next week. But then there's another event. The other event is called the second coming. 
How many of you heard of the second coming of Christ? And, and many people get this confused. The second coming of Christ is when Jesus comes with his saints, with his saints. And that's outlined in Revelation chapter 19. Here's what it, here's what it says. John is write, writing is what he sees, and he says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and his name is called the Word of God. Who's that? That's Jesus, okay? And the armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And what you find is that he then comes back to the earth, puts his foot on the ground, on the mountain, and uh, that's called the second coming. Two very different events. One event, he receives us to be with him. The next event, he comes with us back down. There is a seven-year time period in between those two events. Maybe longer, but there's at least seven years in between those two events. He has to come for us to be with him so that later on we can come back with him. And we'll talk about that when we have the opportunity. Again, I'm not going to spend time on it because that's what we're going to talk about for the whole rest of the chapter of chapter 4 next week. But let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. So far, so good? Okay, here's where the plot thickens. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, finally then, brethren. Now, here's what you need to know. When Paul says, finally then, brethren, here's what he means. When he says finally, he means probably another two or three chapters. That's typically what it means. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and, I want you to underline, please God, just as you actually do walk, but that you excel still more. Underline that, excel still more. When you and I became a believer, the, the idea, the goal, and our heart was changed when we were converted. And, the, and the, there, there was now a, a desire put in us to begin to live a life that was pleasing to God. And so here's what I want you to write down. The question is never, does God allow it? The question is, does it please God? Is it pleasing to him? Now, this is important because for the believer, the question is never, does God allow it? The question is only, is it pleasing to God? Many times somebody will come to me and say, can I still be a Christian and, and then they tack on this thing that they really want to do. That's not the question. The question is, does it please God? Because the Bible teaches that you and I, if we are believers, we're Christians, we've been converted, we were one thing before, but now we're something different. Now our, our lives are designed to, to please God. That's our goal. Not just to see, can I, is this okay, but is it pleasing to him? And so that'll be important for our, for our study. And the idea then, he closes that line, he says that you excel still more. Now what this means is that if you've been a believer for one year or, or five years or ten years, then if you are growing in your relationship with Jesus, then, then you are seeking actively and, and you are, um, you are um, doing your best to live a life that is pleasing because you want to be pleasing him more and more and more. There, there were some things when I first began my walk with the Lord that uh, were part of my life, and God didn't make a big deal of those things at that time. But, but as I grew, I realized that, yes, those things might be allowed, but they weren't pleasing to the Lord. But I had this heart that I wanted to be pleasing to the Lord. So to grow in my relationship with him, I, I, there were just some things that I, I needed to move to the side so that I could just be more pleasing to him. 
So the question is, are we pleasing him, not does he allow it? If we're walking with him, then what we're trying to do is, as we go forward, to live a life that is pleasing him more and more and more. Does that make sense? So, so I'm always a, a little taken back when, when we look at our lives and we see that my life isn't really more pleasing to Jesus this year than it was last year. It implies that we really haven't been growing in our walk and in our faith. We've just become believers. You ever met somebody, they have 20 years of experience, and you look at them on the job and you go, no, you really have like two years of experience, but now you've done it 18 more times. And you, you, you're not really getting more and more experience, you're just doing the same thing. And many times for believers, we grow to a certain place and we stop growing. And we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. And we think that, you know, why isn't my Christian life exciting? Well, here's why. Because you're no longer growing in your walk with Jesus. You're, you're no longer excelling more and more how you can please him. You've just kind of come to a certain place. And, I'm good. This is about as far as I'm going. That's it. And uh, Christianity can become very boring if, if that's what you're doing. All right. So let's move on. So verse 2 then, he says, For you know, I'm, I'm just reminding you what we talked about six months ago when I was there. For you know. What commandments, now I want you to underline the word commandments in your Bible. If you have the word instruction, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. You know, how many of your Bibles have the word commandments? Okay, good, good, good. Um, You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So here's what I want you to write down. Paul gave commandments to the Christians. Now we're all familiar with the Big Ten, aren't we? Back in the Old Testament. So thou shalt not have any other gods before me. You know, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Adultery, murder, stealing, all those things. Paul gives commandments to Christians. There on your outline, he says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, some of your Bibles will have the word instruction. I don't like that that word instruction because it really waters down what's being said here. The word in the original language is commandments. There on your outline, um, I won't try to pronounce it, but it just means a mandate, a charge, a command. It's not instruction. It's not like here's some suggestions that, that you guys can, you know, see if this really works for you. It's not a salad bar where you pick and choose. This, this is commandments. These are commandments. We're going to find that Paul gives 22 specific commandments. You don't break these commandments. These are commandments. If we are Christians, this is just how we live. With me so far? Feel like I'm going somewhere with this? Okay, so, so these are commandments. Now again, the, these are not the Ten Commandments. You're never saved by, by the Ten Commandments, but if, and you're not saved by keeping these commandments. But if you're saved, your heart is changed, and now you want to live a life that's pleasing to God. And uh, so these are the commandments that you would live by as a believer. So um, he says, so here are the commandments, and you remember them. Now, in regard to their Christian walk, Paul gave very, very specific commands. But before we go any further, Paul says, but right now, right now, you Thessalonians, we need to talk about one command. We need to talk about a very specific command. And Paul's saying back in chapter 5, we're going to talk about a bunch of them, 22 of them. But before we go any further, since we gave you commands, I want to talk about one of them. And he stops right here in this letter and says, this is the one that we need to talk about right now. We pick it up in verse 3. And in verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God. 
This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, um, there's a couple of things in this. Uh, Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica. It's not like writing to a church that would be in Israel. This is in uh, the country that you and I would know as Greece. Very pagan, lots of pagan temples. It would be very common in that place for people to work in a temple as a temple prostitute to raise money. And so you going to be with the temple prostitute was an act of worship. It was very effective in raising money. Um, our car washes are a real letdown when you consider you know, how effective that was. But, but this was very common. And so in their culture, it was, it was a culture that was very promiscuous. And so the, just open sexuality was just a, a, a thing that people did. There were pagan temples and you know, pr- promiscuity was just a way of life. But Paul says, but this is the will of God. Verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God. You might be hearing some other things, but I want you to know this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Now, sanctification is an interesting word. I grew up in the church, and um, we were always taught that sanctification meant set aside for special use. How many of you ever heard a definition like that? And, and the part that bothered me was, was they would say you're set aside for special use. And so you feel like everybody else is out doing something, but you're set aside. Well, that's not, not really accurate. Let me, let me upgrade that definition a little bit. Sanctification means designated for special use. Go ahead and write that down. Designated for special use. The word there means consecration, purification. And so God's will for us is our sanctification. We've been designated for special use. Um, Designated for special use means that God has a plan for you and I specifically. And we've been designated for something very special that God wants to do. But that plan and that designation does not include sexual immorality. Notice in the King James, it says it like this. It's probably a little bit more clear. He says, for this is the will of God, I put on your outline, even your sanctification, you've been designated for special use, that you should abstain from, and it uses the word fornication. Now, fornication is a word that that we're a little bit more familiar with. Fornication encompasses any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. it's, um, It's just anything outside of two married people coming together, you know, and, um, you know, you run with that. But the word, the word there in the original language is just the word porneia. I put that on your outline. It's the word porneia. Now, in that day, porneia meant harlotry, including adultery and incest, and uh, figuratively, it could mean idolatry. It's porneia is the word from which we get the more common word in English, por. Pornography. Okay, so, so it's any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. He says that this is not God's will for you. Don't let your culture determine what, what it should be. Um, then he says, so this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Then he goes to verse 4, and he says that each of you, every one of us, know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, honor. What we do with our bodies is is to be honoring to the Lord. 
So he says each one should possess his own vessel. Most of your Bibles will, will say that. Vessel means container. You are a container for the Holy Spirit. Your body is the container for your soul. And so you are called by God to possess your body in honor and in sanctification before the Lord. And any sexual activity outside of marriage is prohibited. It's prohibited. We'll talk about that as we go. Then verse 5, he goes on, just continues on. He says, now, not in lustful passion, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul is saying, he says, like the Gentiles who do not know God. There in Thessalonica, it was very common, promiscuity was very common. And uh, Paul is saying, your view of sexuality, what is appropriate, does not come from your, from your common culture. Your view as believers about what is appropriate sexually comes from God and God alone. A God-empowered person is somebody who um, controls his body, his, his vessel. Somebody who's not God-controlled or God-empowered is somebody who's controlled by their body. Here, the Gentiles are non-believers. So it's just the, the culture around them. He says in verse 5, he says, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And, and lust is just simply desiring something very strongly that, that you're not supposed to. It's just not for you. This is not for you. The problem with lust is that lust is never satisfied. So you go a little bit outside of the bonds, you think that that satisfies, and all that does is increase your desire to go a little bit further, and it never ends. So then you come to verse 6. Now in verse 6, he says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as, now I want you to underline, as we also told you before. We talked about this during that three weeks. This was something going on in your culture. We needed to deal with this. And so we talked about this. And then he says, and solemnly warned you. Solemnly warned you. So there's a couple of things in this verse. First of all, he says that as believers, you're not to transgress and defraud your brother in this. So, so how do we do this? Fornication and sex outside of marriage is basically taking what belongs to somebody else. Your body belongs, if you're single here today, your body belongs to your, to your future spouse. And if somebody takes that body, what they are doing is they are stealing that from your future spouse, and they're using that for them. And we live in a culture where people would never think of stealing your lawnmower. But they think nothing of stealing what belongs to your future spouse. And Paul says, when you do that, you are stealing what belongs to somebody else. And he says, and when you do that, you're defrauding. You're taking what doesn't belong to you. That's stealing. That's stealing. You're not supposed to do that. So your body belongs to your spouse. If you're single, that, that's your spouse in, in, in the future. And if you're taking that, then you're defrauding that person. And um, God says that that's very serious in his mind. As a matter of fact, I want you to write this down. Let me read verse 6 again. He says, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we told you before, 
and solemnly warned you. So here, here's what we can, we can get from this. Write it down. From God's perspective, sexual relationships outside of marriage are considered stealing. And God takes this very seriously. God takes it very seriously. That, which is why Paul says, we told you this before and we solemnly warned you. And then it says, and the Lord is the avenger in these things. God takes this particular sin very serious. Verse 7, he says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So God's called you for a very special purpose, but that's not the purpose. Then verse 8, he says, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Here's what he's saying. I want you to write it down. Rejecting God's moral code and sexuality is rejecting God himself. Rejecting God's moral code and sexuality is rejecting God himself. So the, here, here's the question. Does, does God, did he give this because he wants to ruin our fun? Is that, is that his, his goal? Um, I, I think that that's not the case, but I think deep down we think that. But I want you to consider creation and the nature of God. I mean, if God really wanted to ruin our fun, then in creating us, why, why, would, um, why would God give us taste buds? You ever considered that? Why, why would God give us taste buds if he didn't want us to enjoy to the fullest? Because not only did he give us taste buds, but he didn't make everything taste bland, did he? He gave us at least 31 different flavors of ice cream. And, and apparently, he gave us the taste buds because he wants us to enjoy. That makes sense? So in his creation, he, he gave, us, gave us the taste buds, but there's also the satisfaction for that, and he gave us that so that we could enjoy it. So his goal in that was, was so that we could enjoy it. Well, not only that, if, if God wanted to ruin our fun, then why did he give us eyes that see all the vibrant colors? I mean, when you think about it, if, if God really wanted to hold us back and remove our fun, why didn't he just give us eyes that just saw everything in kind of black and gray and, and white, just different shades, like old black and white TV. Remember that? Some of you don't. You're too young. For those of us who did. And wh- why? Why did he give us these vibrant colors where you can see a sunset and you see the sun and it shines off the clouds and you, you can see mountainscapes and all the vibrant colors? Why did he do that? Well, it's, it's because he wanted us to enjoy in, in his creation, his purpose for all of that was for our enjoyment. He, he wanted us to take, it, to take it in and enjoy it to the fullest. But in the area of sexuality, everybody understands that God created the process. Everybody understands that, that God created the desire that we have for that. And it's, it's, it's fairly universal. It's apparently intended for pleasure. So why did God put parameters around this certain thing, this, this whole idea of sexuality. Well, I, I think you'll agree that, that sex is very much like a fire. You know, if you, if you have it in the, the fireplace, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It brings warmth, it brings comfort, it's a wonderful thing. But that fire let loose anywhere else in your house will burn down your house. In a certain place, it's a wonderful thing, 
But outside of that parameter, it can be incredibly devastating. And I think that if we were to be honest, many of us, many of us in this room, have had significant portions of our life burned down because someone went outside of the parameters of what's appropriate sexually. And nobody told us about all of that. In creation, there's something about sexuality that is unique to humans, which is very different in the rest of creation. Nothing will destroy a marriage and a family faster than a violation of God's sexual parameters. It, it kills it faster than, than just about anything. And God says, if you reject this in verse 8, you're not rejecting man's teaching. You're rejecting, God would say, me. You're rejecting God. Now, now why is that? We're rejecting God because we are believing the lie of someone else. You can't walk with God and at the same time walk believing the lie of someone else. You can't walk with Satan believing his lies and at the same time walk with God. So when you go in this direction, God says you are rejecting me. And as you reject me, you're embracing the lie of somebody who wants to destroy your life. So to walk with God, you have to reject Satan's lies. And, and to walk with Satan, you have to reject God. And each of us has to make a choice. If you're here today and you're single and you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, then you need to know that, that you are not walking with God. You're not walking with God. And by your behavior, you are rejecting the God that you claim to have a relationship with. You cannot walk with him and do that. If you're here today and, and you are going and you are involved in pornography on the internet or wherever, you need to know and you need to not be deceived. You are not walking with God because you can't walk in Satan's lie and at the same time walk with God. And as you do that, he says, you are literally rejecting me. And we're not talking about salvation, but we are talking about that relationship. We're talking about that relationship. And if that's you today, then you need to repent. You need to realize that, that, that you've been believing somebody's lie. But I think, I'm going to be very tied to my notes today. Um, but I think that there's something more. There's a, a, a great book that the world is, is uh, learning. Uh, there's a principle called the 80-20 principle. How many of you ever heard of that? It's a fantastic book. And Richard Coe talks about a number of different things. I read this book several years ago. And this is a completely secular book. This is, he's not a believer in any way. But in a certain part of the book, he, he talks about relationships. And he says, and here, here's what I think why God says this is not for you. He says, anthropologists stress that the number of exhilarating and important personal relationships that people can establish is limited. Apparently, the common pattern of people in any society is to have two important childhood friends 
two significant adult friends and two doctors. Most commonly, you fall in love only once, and there's only one member of your family whom you love above all others. The number of significant personal relationships is remarkably similar for everyone, regardless of their location, sophistication, or culture. We have a very limited number of relationships that we can very deeply involve ourselves in. It goes on to say, this has led anthropologists to to come up with what they call the village theory. This is not Hillary's theory. It's something totally different. The village theory. For you Republicans walk out of the room. And and here's what it says. In an African village, all these relationships happen within a few hundred meters and are often formed within a, a short period of time. For us, those relationships may spread all over the planet and for a whole lifetime, they nonetheless constitute a village which, which each of us have in our heads. And once these slots are filled, they are filled forever. Forever. Anthropologists say that if you have too much experience, too early, you exhaust your capacity for further deep relationships. Then they did a study, and they took a number of of women who had had sexual relationships with at least 100 men. Some had had relationships with with hundreds of men. Uh, They were all between the ages of 20 and 21, and it was a a longitudinal study to connect these women with uh, certain families, and these families would invite them into their home and uh, teach them how to have relationships. And it says, the project was a total failure. The explanation was that the women were incapable of forming any deep new relationships. They were all used up. Their relationship slots had been filled forever. Goes on with a bit of wisdom and it says, fill your relationship slots with extreme care and not too early. Here's what it's teaching. That every one of us has a certain number of people that we can connect with very deeply. And when you come together with somebody physically, sexually, um, and then you separate from that person, what takes place is after so many people, you can no longer bond deeply, and then you come into marriage, and you have a very hard time bonding sexually. There's something in, in the creation that God's created so that you just can't do that. And for some of us, we come into marriage so marred by so much experience that the world told us was appropriate, and now you get into marriage and you can't bond the way that you thought that you would. On your outline, you'll notice it says um, in Genesis 2. Is it on your outline, the last verse on your outline? In Genesis 2, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father... If it's not, that's okay, I'll read it. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Ideally, in God's design, we are to leave our parents' home, come together as one flesh, and become one flesh in that physical union. We are not to come together from our past relationship and the relationship behind that. In God's design, it was you come together in that way. Now, the reason for that, the reason for that is because God designed us very specifically and something happens. When two people come together, they become one flesh. Literally like this sheet of paper and another sheet of paper, you are glued emotionally. And when a couple comes together and they're glued emotionally, uh, a bonding takes place, and it's a very deep bonding. But when that couple decides to separate, there's a tearing. 
And in that tearing, you'll notice that part of this person now goes with this person. And, and what takes place is now this person decides something's happened here, but then they decide, I'm going to go meet somebody else. Well, they meet somebody else, and what they find is, here's somebody, and this person has already been with somebody else, and they've already separated and glued back together with somebody else, and then there's a tearing there. And so now this person and this person decide to become one flesh. And there's a glue that takes place. And every time they separate, there is, at the emotional level, at the spiritual level, there's a tearing. There's a tearing. And what takes place is, over time, they show up ready to encounter Jesus, but they're shredded. They're shredded emotionally. And God knew that in the original design, the more you connect on that level with different people, the less ability you have to deeply connect with that one person. And there's that constant tearing. And for many of us, apart from God's intervention and a very deep healing, that's never going to take place. And that is not God's plan for you. God's plan for you is to come together first time, first time, ideally, and God gives forgiveness and and restoration but it's very different. There's a very deep bond there. And for many of us, we look like the shredded paper emotionally. Satan never wants to, Satan does not want to tell us the dark side of sexual freedom. Each, every one of us here knows that in my family, there are a number of children who, whose birth parents believed it was just fun and it was just recreational. And what was fun and recreational became their greatest pain. And there was one adoption where we were at the hospital and the birth mother realized that she could not take care of this child. And so she was signing the paper to sign this baby over. We stepped outside of the room to give her a few minutes. She was there holding the baby. And on the outside, we heard the deepest guttural cry you can't even imagine. It was this as she was just in agony over the fact that she had to sign and give this child away because she knew and she was thrilled that the child was coming with us. But that pain and that tearing. Satan is a liar. He told her about the fun, but he didn't tell her about that. You only want to hear that sound one time in your life and you never want to hear that sound coming from you. If you're here today and you are involved in any sexual relationship outside of marriage, God's will for you is for your sanctification and for your joy. But you cannot walk with God while listening to Satan's lies. He's a deceiver and he wants to destroy your life. And so as we close in prayer, if that's you, today, repent. Come back to God's design. Allow God by his word and his spirit and by your faithful walking with him to restore and give God that part of your life to do with what he sees fit and walk in his way for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrap this this teaching up, very heavy in how you gave commands to these Christians and and, uh, this is just what it meant to be a believer. 
And Paul was very emphatic. And we know that we live in a culture very much like the Thessalonians. We know that it's around us 24 hours a day. It's on the internet, it's on cable, it's on billboards, it's everywhere. And as you called these people to believe the truth and reject the lie because you wanted there to be a benefit in their lives and not to be caught up with the destruction that Satan wants to bring them to. Father, for each and every one of us, we commit ourselves once again to living by your standard in this area. We realize that we have been designated for something very special. And that does not include sexual immorality. And for those of us who are single, we commit that we will walk faithfully with you in this area and we will have no sexual activity until the ring is on the finger and the I do's are set. And for those of us, Lord, who would be here today, maybe struggling in the area of internet, pornography, and things of that nature, I pray that your truth would be so strong and that we would see the lie for what it is and that there would be that rejection of anything associated with that. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be so loud in our hearts and in our ears and our spirit that that lie would just be a thing of the past and that we would walk in sanctification from this time on. Lord, there are a number of us who are here today and if we were to be honest, we're like that shredded piece of paper. We've been with so many and there's attachments and emotional attachments and all types of things tied to that. And Lord, as we realize you're the only one who can bring that deep healing, we invite you to bring that deep healing into our lives. And we go forward today walking with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.